are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. If you've watched some of GIZ Fabrics seminar series, Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, you might have noticed Dr. Stephen Frost, who often swooped in at the end of a panel discussion with incredibly insightful synthesis of the session's discussion. He was also a panelist himself on the 11th seminar. And it was in the process of watching these seminars that I became I guess you could say a bit of a fan of Stephen Frost. So when we had the chance to have him on our show and he accepted, we were thrilled. Stephen has a pretty interesting journey. He started out as an academic in Australia with a PhD in Asian studies. He cycled from Kathmandu to Colombo. And in the early 2000s, he moved to Hong Kong, where he started out working for one of the first CSR NGOs, when CSR was just starting to become a thing. He's still in Hong Kong today, but has crisscrossed the sustainability sector in and out of academia and going into business himself with a CSR consulting firm. Today, he's an honorary institute fellow at the Chinese University of Hong Kong Business School and co-founder of GoBlue. GoBlue is the sustainability accelerator for apparel and textile companies, providing brand level, supply chain level, and communication services to clients around the globe. Stephen leads GoBlue's marketing and communication work, part of which includes writing the GoBlue newsletter, which we'll talk about more throughout the show. In this episode, part one of our conversation, Stephen reflects on how CSR within the fashion industry has evolved and shares his view on how it's been perceived in the world of manufacturing over the years. He also reflects on what surprised him and what he's learned through his engagement with manufacturers. In part two of this conversation, which we've also released today, Stephen reflects on the gaps he perceives in the sustainable fashion conversation and what he wishes different stakeholders around the sustainable fashion table understood about one another. Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with Jazz at Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economics, Cooperation and Development and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Why don't we start with you and your journey into the fashion industry and um, a bit about what you do now, Stephen? The thing that grabbed my attention in the first place, I, I can remember back in the 90s, I read an article that said that Nike had not made a shoe in North America since 1980-something, let's say 86. Mm. I forget mm -hmm. the exact date. I, I read this in the 
in the mid 90s. And um, at the same time, I was starting to do work on industrial relations in the home appliance industry at a time in Australia where um, Australia had home appliance manufacturers like Sunbeam, which were in the process of shutting down because they couldn't compete against China. So I was very interested in um, the impact that outsourcing to China, well, it was mainly China back in the 90s, uh, maybe some to Thailand, etc., but you know, mainly China, and the impact that was having on the Australian manufacturing sector. And the Australian manufacturing sector was essentially hollowed out. Um, it, it just disappeared. Uh, back in the 90s, yeah, mid-90s, globalisation was a new term. And so I was very interested in this whole um, globalisation of industrialization, outsourcing, and what happened um, in manufacturing with that outsourcing. And of course, what happened was low wages, long hours, poor health and safety, and that, and that I got really interested in looking at industrial relations. So take us to the early 2000s then. The time I came to Hong Kong in, in early 2000, I got a job uh, away from academia in an NGO, uh, Asia's oldest labor rights NGO called the Asia Monitor Resource Center, the AMRC. Uh, so I did that for a while and then I came back into academia, um, but then I started a, a company, a, a CSR consulting firm in Hong Kong. Um, and we, we worked with a lot of companies and we started working quite a bit with manufacturers in China, a lot of whom were garment uh, and textile manufacturers. And uh, then I, I, sold, I sold my share of that company and went back to academia and then um, helped start up another company called Go Blue, uh, which I'm still with. And it's, and it's for Go Blue that I do the newsletter. And many of you might already be familiar with the Go Blue newsletter because it's the most comprehensive roundup of sustainable fashion news that at least I've come across. But if you don't already subscribe, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's free, and we highly recommend checking it out. And, and it's through the newsletter, collecting all of the news on sustainable stuff around textiles and garments and brands and retailers uh, that I've really dug very deeply into into the fashion sector. It's just a two words caught my attention in the 90s. Globally, first word is uh, globalization. And the second is uh, hollowed out. Because I remember, I think, in, yes, in 90s, globalization is a very good word, actually. And I remember at that time, China has this national-wide discussing about we have to catch the opportunities of globalization, you know. Correct. And now is 20 years past, I think. Globalization does bring uh, benefits, a lot of benefits for some people, but also, as you said, hollowed. Some industries in some countries eventually become hollowed. And today, when we look back, we don't really know globalization is a good thing or or actually it is good maybe at the beginning, but there are huge drawbacks or consequences. we not sure we have a clear conclusion today. Well, well people back in the, you know, academics back in the 90s discussing this term globalization, Many of them were critical. Many of them were, could, you know, were critical of, of what this meant. Job yeah. losses, um, race to the bottom, 
you know, chasing cheap labor, chasing, uh, you know, poor regulatory oversight. It's interesting for me to hear you say this, Jesse, and to point out the Chinese perspective on globalization at the time, because at the same time, I was a university student in the U.S. at a particularly left-leaning institution and, as Stephen says, was definitely taught that globalization was probably a bad thing. From the perspective of China, from the China side, globalization is definitely a good word at that time. Because it, it is a huge opportunity. Along with globalization, then slowly started coming demands from brands like Adidas, Levi's, Nike around CSR. Yeah. And in 2003, 2004, the conversation in China was like, we can either start complying with all of these CSR requirements, and that's a, an opportunity. But for other people, it was like a wolf at the door. I can remember that term, you know, wolf at the door. Um, <laughs> in China, some manufacturers saying, look, this, this is just a way of, of harming China's competitiveness by adding costs to our manufacturing. You know, they want us to, uh, you know, eight hours per day, um, good health and safety, um, et cetera, et cetera. This is just adding costs, you know, environmental performance. This is adding costs to our manufacturing. There was a discussion in China for a while, for a couple of years, resisting some of that CSR push that came along with globalization. Um, but then eventually yeah, you know, China jumped on board with that as well because most people realize if we don't do it, uh, we're just making life difficult. That's also interesting because um, at some point in the, in the early, not very early, but early uh, 2000, like 2003, 2005, something, I was working in Shenzhen, we could uh, clearly feel the the change of the government because the government also supports CSR. So they issued more details about labor law and they formed quite practical facilities to help employees to Correct. protect their rights. So in this transformation, you can see government also switch to like uh, mm. we need to adopt all these regulations or social conditions so that we can attract more foreign or capitals or investment. I don't really know what exactly they are thinking, but anyway, we can feel that change switched to. Yeah. And I think that's like, the, in a way, a perfect transition to what one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about, Stephen, because you've been in this industry, you know, since CSR became a thing, really. And one of the things that I think, you know, like, there's so much to talk about in the day to day of sustainable fashion. I mean, your newsletter that you put out twice a week, or yeah, I think mm, twice, twice a week, yeah. right? Twice a week. I mean, it has, I don't know, I'm gonna say like at least 100 links every day, or every every edition. And Maybe more than that, but there's over a hundred a week for sure. Yeah, yeah, and so like I, one of the things that I think sometimes, even like for myself, I forget to just stop and zoom out because there's so much to talk about in terms of what's happening today, what's happening this week, and I think it's valuable to to zoom out and to take a little bit of a long term view. And I use that that word sort of. Um, 
I hesitate to even use that word because it's hardly very long, but, um, you know, but still relative to, I think, how most of these conversations usually go, even looking at the last 40, 30, 40 years is, is, is a long time. And, and that was one of the things we wanted to ask you about, because I think that the narrative around sustainability, which, you know, and CSR, which typically starts, you know, as you pointed out in the late 80s, 90s, when there were some of these big brands that were struggling um, with sweatshop scandals, at least in the, in the fashion industry. And the narrative usually kind of focuses on how in the beginning, in response to those scandals and those human rights abuses, brands responded by saying things like, you know, we can't control what happens there. Those are those are different companies, different entities. You know, it's, it's sort of beyond our, our scope to then sort of like the tide turning a little bit and those same brands starting to sort of um, champion social audits and a proliferation of, of voluntary private compliance initiatives. And I'm curious, like, that's the, the, the story that we often hear. And that's the story really from the perspective of the brand. But Jesse, sort of what you were just talking about is the story a little bit from the perspective of the Chinese government. And Stephen, what you touched on is the story from the perspective of the Chinese manufacturers. But I'm curious to just touch on this a little bit explicitly. And what do you think, you know, you were based in Hong Kong and working with a lot of suppliers in China around that time. What do you think suppliers made of this pivot from the brand on the brand side from saying, hey, not our problem to suddenly, okay, here are all these things you need to now do and we're going to come and check. I think it's very difficult to, to, to generalize. I think mm -hmm. one response, I think one common response was, um, who are you to come and tell us how to run our business? Yeah, if you could put, your, put yourself in the shoes of a, of a Chinese factory owner who spent 20 years, 25 years building up a family business from five sewing machines in his back room to 20,000 workers in a big factory. He's been successful. He's producing for some of the world's largest fashion brands uh, on quality, on pricing, and on delivery schedules. He's hitting every, you know, every point perfectly. He's winning, uh, you know, we're the, the supplier of the year for this retailer and this brand and et cetera, et cetera. And then one day, your your client says to you, well, there's a new thing in town and we're <laughs> going to send out a team and we're going to check some stuff. It's not going to be quality. It's not QC. It's not, you know, we're going to check stuff that we haven't been looking at, which is, you know, CSR. And as one, one fairly well-known Hong Kong uh, company owner said to me, you know, the first time one of these audit teams came out into my factory, we had an exit meeting, you know, that meeting up, yeah, you know, they've spent a day looking in the factory. They sit down with the management at the end of the day and tell you, okay, this is what we found, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And back in those days, a lot of ugly, right? And he said, I was just furious that a, a, a bunch of kids who knew nothing about running a business were telling me, you know, who knows this business backwards, that I'm doing everything wrong. He said, I was absolutely furious. He said, I couldn't talk. <laughs> and and so it was a it was an evolution for him because later on he became 
quite the advocate for um, RAP. And RAP stands for Worldwide Responsible Accredited Production. You know, uh, he was an advocate in Hong Kong for his uh, peers, other Hong Kong garment companies to get certified because he could see in the long run that if they didn't do this, they would suffer. You know, th this was here to stay. It wasn't some little trend that was going to go away. You could see it was only going to get tougher and tougher, which, which was proven correct. So I think, you know, I think, I think many manufacturers had a a real kind of uh, um, negative experience with those first visits, and and evidence for that is that what a lot of companies did initially was to fake the data. Yeah, so there's a whole well, there still is to some extent, but you know. Mm -hmm. Back in the early 2000s, you know, up until 2010, 2012, um, the audit game was a cat and mouse game where the factory knew that the brand knew that the factory was cheating and knew that the brand <laughs> knew that they knew that, you know, it was just, I, I remember a factory owner said to me one day, he said, Stephen, look, I've got six people in my personnel department whose only job is to, is to produce fake documents for auditors. Fake payment documents, fake, you know, fake hour documents, the whole works, right? And he, he said, I'm just like a hamster on a wheel. I can't get off. Um, he says, they know I'm faking it. I know that they know I'm faking it. But we, we, we dance around this issue. He says, I, I don't want to be doing this anymore, but I'm scared. How do I get off? How do I get off this kind of, you know, faking the, the audit, the audit data? The, the response, the response from the manufacturing side was this this is increasing our costs um, you're, and, and, and you know you come and ask me to do this but you're also sourcing from a factory down the road I know what that factory down the road does they're doing nothing and yet you're mm -hmm. still purchasing from them they can offer the price you know uh, 15 cents cheaper or 10 cents cheaper on a on an item but I can't do that because I'm doing all the stuff that you you say I should be doing it. So there was a lot of, um, uh, yeah, th th there was a, a lot of antagonism towards the brands about saying one thing but not really following through with all of the all of the companies. There were free riders. There were it was a, it was a mess to be quite frank. And, and the policing aspect didn't lead to the development of good relations. Um, it didn't. Yeah, and it's like one of the things that strikes me when I hear you describe all this is how much of what you just said like resonates with my own experience, which is so much more recent. I don't know. So it's like, you know, in some ways, maybe some things have changed, but in other ways, maybe they haven't. And I'm curious, you mentioned when you were talking about your background and your introducing yourself a bit you you mentioned that you were you know when you were doing consulting work that some of your clients were manufacturers was this consulting work that you were doing you were hired by the manufacturers themselves or was it the brands who came in and said you need to you know you need to go and do some work with these guys or how did that play out so, so when I started the consulting firm in the early 2000s um 
I started a factory improvement training program, uh, mainly in China. And we would sometimes be, I mean, what we aimed for was to be contracted by the manufacturer. Um, but what we realistically learned was it was uh, sometimes easier to have the brands involved. Um, I don't want to say they would twist arms, but let's be frank, they twisted arms and, um, and, and, and would say to 10 of their main suppliers, look, we want you to go through this program. Um, but I think, yeah, doing that program taught me some really valuable lessons. So my, my factory improvement training program, I used to call it Fit5. We were visiting factories and seeing a lot of inefficiencies, huge labor turnover rates, you know, maybe 10% per month. Um, we'd see enormous amounts of waste, you know, at the end of the production line. We'd see huge inefficiencies in the workflow in, in factories. You know, we have the cutting room up in the north end of the factory on floor three, and then everything would have to be carted down to the south end of the factory on floor one, you know, this sort of stuff, right? And so we developed a program where we would deal with those kinds of uh, production inefficiencies and issues so that we could start conversations around social and environmental issues um, and then deal with them. And and something happened in that program, I think, that that speaks volumes for relations, the relationships in this area that that are out of sight of most people that are not in the manufacturing area. Um, so we had we had pretty good success with this. You know, we we were able to, you know, reduce rework rates significantly and then start working on you know, some of the social, you know, the CSR issues. And we're having good success. And and one day we came up against a factory, you know, we sent engineers in and they looked at the production flows and we did some pretty simple things and we knew that based on experience that would have some positive outcomes. Nothing happened, you know, the no improvements occurred. After several months and we went back in and no improvements. We couldn't work out what was happening. You know, why wasn't this factory making improvements in efficiency? It was a well-run factory. You know, they, they had some things that could be changed. They changed them, but we didn't get these efficiency gains. And eventually I had lunch with uh, the owner and I said, look, you know, completely off the record, what's going on? And he said, look, we're sabotaging this. You know, we... We don't, we don't want manufacturing efficiencies because mm. if we do, our client is going to come to us and want a piece of that action. And, and what he meant was, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what he means, right? I <laughs> know what he means. They, yeah. want, they want a lower cost. They want a lower <laughs> price. Mm-hmm. And he said, then we're back to square one. What, you know, we're back to where we were when we started the program. And, and yeah, that was an, that was my. Uh, I had many eye-opening moments during my my years of doing these sorts of things, but that was one of the ones that's really stuck with me, and um, it really reinforces a view that I have that I'm not saying this pessimistically. Uh, this is a this is just the reality I see. That every every solution creates a new set of problems that we need to overcome. You know, every solution comes with a set of stuff that 
unintended or otherwise that we have to start dealing with. And it comes back to something I often say to my students. I run, I'm also teach at a university, a course on business sustainability to business students. And, and I always say to my students, sustainable business or CSR is, is, is not really about technical issues, although it, it is to some extent. But what it's really about is a culture of change. It's about a shift in management mindset. And this can take years, even in very sophisticated global companies that want to do this right. You know, so if you take a Fortune 500 company that wants to embark on a CSR, you know, strategy, it's still going to take them years for it to percolate down through the company. Now you take that to a manufacturer in Bangladesh or Cambodia or China. We also need years for that to, you know, yeah, you can force companies to do it, which the policing of the supply chain was all about. That was forcing companies into it. But forcing companies into it gets the response, gets a rational business response of, you know, if I've got a, if I've got a five million dollar order from, you know, brand X, it's in my best interests to, I'm not saying it's right, but you know, rationally, it's in my best interest to cheat on the audit to keep my $5 million order rather than to embark on a series of changes in the factory that I'm not really sure what the heck is going to end up looking like. But I, and I, like that really resonates with me too, because I think like, I think often these narratives get simplified, right? So the story becomes, right. well, you have a manufacturer who cares more about themselves than about, you know, their workers or a collective goal. And so they're going to sort of cheat you. But actually, like I found myself when I was a factory manager, also sometimes making decisions to withhold information or to, you know, you know, whatever it might have been. But it wasn't so much. It was a lot more complicated than just like, oh, I didn't I didn't want to, to, you know, or I wanted to to, uh, you know, put my own interests above everything else. It was that like, you know, sometimes you have as a factory manager, you have to make really hard choices and you're like, okay, I could share this piece of information, but it's probably going to be used to put pressure on me to lower my costs. And that's that's going to compromise the livelihoods of all the people I already employ, you know? And so there there are are things we can't see. mm -hmm. There are things we can't see until you are sitting in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I think it's important to have skin in the game. And by yeah. skin in the game, I mean that, you know, if you're going to tell someone what to do, you know, you've got to have a risk in the outcome as well. You've got to, you've got to buy into the risk of the outcome as well. A good example of this is the, is the, um, the campaign that you, that I've seen, you know, for 20 years in one form or another, which is if we just added 10 cents onto every t-shirt. Right. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> right. Now, all right, you know, I, I get where this is coming from. But, all right, we put 10 cents onto the T-shirt, so the seamstresses get 10 cents. But what about the people that make the buttons? You know, where's their extra bit? Or the people that make the the fabric, the, the thread or the fabric, which is the main cost of the, the product, mm-hmm. or 
um, the guys driving the truck or the people in the ginning mill or the, yeah, whatever, right? Um, the, the, the complication here is, is phenomenal and everybody is under pressure. You know, the cut and sew factory may take a job and then there's uh, no profit in it. Then they think, well, we'll get our profit by squeezing the price down on the buttons. And there's in the electronics industry, this is a way of doing business. You know, you've got the big manufacturer up here that's making the computers or the IVR, yeah, the phones. And all the way down, there's been, you know, pressure, pressure downward, downward pressure, downward pressure, downward pressure. And the profit comes from everyone being squeezed a little bit and passing that on to someone further down the supply chain. Um, no wonder that we see artisans in India doing embroidery getting paid or, or home workers getting paid peanuts because that's where the squeezing ends up. And the solution for that, from my perspective, is not easily evident. It's, it's not it's not clear to me what a one-size-fits-all solution might look like. I, I can see where we can tinker, which is what we're essentially doing. As the first example, our first story you told, the Hong Kong uh, factory owner who ran business for 20 mm. years has all his own system and he hates quality price, uh, quality price and shipment schedule perfectly on each point. This is really not an easy thing. So he already successful, established in, in business. And now suddenly he needs to apply CSR. There is a, it's like a train switching the track. There is, it needs time and there is a cost. But if no one gets involved into this shifting process and he is going to bear the risks by himself, and in the end, he has a bigger threat because the order is waiting at the end as a punishment if he didn't make this sweep. But if he made it and he successfully landed on the new track, then orders become a reward, you see. But no matter it's a punishment or it's a reward, the brands or the retailers who initiate the whole process has no risk at all. It's, it's all his own risk. Perfect summary, except I'll make one slight change. <laughs> the order is not a reward because next order may not come back. Uh, yeah, it's true. It's a steer. Right? Yeah, even it's, it's good supplier, it doesn't mean to come back. Yeah. Yeah, because one of the complaints from manufacturers is I do all of this stuff, but there's no guarantee that Brand X will keep on coming back to me especially if I have to raise prices. Which really, I mean, if to put it in a simple way, comes back to what you said earlier, Stephen, which was there's no skin in the game. There's no skin. There's, yeah, there's, there's no risk, as Jesse says, I, perfect. Mm -hmm. There's no risk for the buyer. To do something just for corporate reputation at some point runs out of steam, I think. Um. There needs to be a much more clear understanding from the chief financial officer on what what money does this make us? Because that's what he's saying to the or what he or she's saying to the purchasing team. You know, the buying office is, well, how much money did you make us this year? Yeah. You know, the head of the Hong Kong buying office lives or dies in those P and L meetings 
on, okay, <laughs> how much money are you making us? And, and so for the buyers, everything comes down to the unit cost. And to add 10 cents onto a T-shirt is like, wow, you know, there would be buying teams out there. Like, are you crazy? We can't put 10 cents extra onto a T-shirt. That's impossible. Which I think maybe loops back to something we've talked about in other episodes of this show, which in a way has to do with a very narrow understanding and short-term understanding of of shareholder obligations. Um, Because ultimately, you know, like what I don't understand, I mean, I understand it. I do understand it and I don't understand it. But one of the things that really like, you know, gets me fired up as you look at the last year in the fashion industry and what's incredibly obvious and there, you know, is that the industry has a massive inventory problem. You can call it overproduction problem, inventory problem, you know, whatever. And part of the reason for that is also because these forecasting horizons are so long that it's very difficult to get these predictions about what consumers are going to buy right. And you know, one of the reasons that the forecasting horizons are so long is because the supply chains are so long. And why are the supply chains so long? Well, because there's no shared risk. There's no skin in the game, you know? So everybody sort of copes with the fact that, you know, like every supplier copes with the fact that they, you know, disproportionately bear the financial risk in the sense that they are the ones having to pay the people making the goods. They are the ones having to buy all the raw materials up front by pushing it down, you know, pushing it down to someone else and the supply chain gets longer and longer and the forecasting horizons get longer and longer and then they get less and less accurate. And then we end up with this inventory problem. And the thing is like, yeah, if you're going to take a very short term and narrow view of shareholder obligations, then, you know, investing or, you know, having a little bit more money on the line or more skin in the game, you know, is not going to look good on your financial statement, but in the long run, it's, it's going to, you'll probably be a lot better off. And that's where we're going to end part one of this conversation. But if you're enjoying it, we hope you'll continue listening to part two, which we've also released today. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.